We'll be in Romans chapter 5 this evening, if you plan to follow along. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. We start with a question, who do you think loves you the most? Kind of fun thought exercise. Who in this world loves you the most? You might not answer the question aloud. You know, say one roommate, not the other. Say your mom while you're sitting next to your wife. Big mistake. <laughs> you will guarantee it. No, think about it. Who do you think loves you more than anyone? Maybe a parent or a grandparent, your spouse, an unusually good friend, your dog or a cat. Probably not the cat. Over the course of your life, who has loved you the most? How do you know that they love you? You see, love is expressed in action. The person who loves you the most is not, sorry, Taylor Swift, it is not an organization like the Memphis Grizzlies. We're talking about someone who sees you, knows you, and they've expressed love to you in action. We experience love as someone else pursues our good, as someone looks to our interests even above their own, as someone is willing to sacrifice themselves for our benefit, we experience love. So as you think about a person, you should be able to point to either a single act or a series of acts that prove to you their love. They worked themselves to the bone to care for you. They left everything behind to start a better life for you. They donated or paid for life-saving treatment. They defended you against harm. They supported you while you were weak. They were loyal to you when everyone else fell away. Someone loves you and you know it because you can point to an act or a series of actions. Now that's easy enough to grasp someone loves you. You can see that they love you, but why do they love you? Why does this person love you? It might be easier to think about in reverse, whom do you love the most and why do you love them? I'm confident it's not going to be an arbitrary love. The person that you love, you find them good or lovely or worthy. There's something in them that in your mind, it warrants a level of love and affection that is fitting for their, their worthiness. So why does that person love you? Probably because they find you lovely. Even if their love predated yours in the case of a parent and child, there's still something reciprocal. They still see something good in you, something desirable that drew them to you. And in time, they act in love and you respond. Okay, that's how love works for us creatures. We see something we think is good. We're drawn to it. We pursue it. We will give to them even as it costs to us. But how does love work for God? We could apply the same questions to God. Does God... God love you? How do you know God loves you? Why does God love you? We find no clearer answer than the cross. 
Good Friday's cross broadcasts on full volume that God loves us. It proclaims not just that God loves us, but how he loves us. What's most shocking of all is why God loves us. It's not because we're lovely. He chooses to love the sinner, which makes his love for us all the more outrageous and lavish. The wonderfully good news of Good Friday is that God loves us despite of our sin, such that he would send his son to deal with it. Does God love you? How do you know God loves you? Why does he love you? Keep that in mind as we read our text. If you're able, I will invite you to stay with me in reverence for Holy Scripture, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. We can grasp the good news of God's love for us by asking a simple question. What kind of people did Jesus die for? What kind of people did Jesus die for? We see three things in the text. Jesus died for the helpless, the ungodly, and those loved by God. Jesus died for the helpless, the ungodly, also verse 8, the sinners, verse 10, God's enemies, and yet those dearly loved by God. Verses 6 through 8 fit into Paul's overall argument in the first half of the book of Romans, where Paul is demonstrated that we are justified, that is, we are forgiven for our crimes against God, we are rendered positively righteous or good or deserving before God, not on the basis of our works under the law, but simply by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. More simply put, God saves us from what we deserve, his wrath for our wrongdoings, to give us what we don't deserve, his righteousness. Not because of any good things that we have done, but because of what God has done on our behalf. We receive it as a gift through faith. Paul here in Romans 5, 6 through 8 is taking up this concern. He's showing us that we are saved by faith by stressing the kind of people that Jesus died for. And in doing so, he shows us how remarkable God's love is for his people. For whom did Jesus die? He died for, verse 6, the helpless. Your translation might render it the weak. We're talking about those who could not save themselves. It's difficult to grasp the fullness of the gospel because if we were honest, we are allergic to the notion that we're weak. Right? The sinner thinks of themselves as anything but helpless. We feed our children on the notions that they can do anything they want, they can become anything they desire, they can create anything they dream, and to this, the gospel says you are weak. 
And this weakness, it's not the kind of weakness you can grow in. Okay, you can be physically weak and you work out. I've been doing, been doing that very thing. I've noticed my Latin is weak. I've been daily working on my Latin. Okay, there's no gym membership or daily routine for growing in the problem that Paul is talking about. You could try to put it on a resolution, but you would fail. Paul is talking about our weakness or helplessness under God's law. The law is, of course, what God requires of us. It's his righteous standard based on his righteous character. Paul tells us quite plainly in Romans 3, verse 20, that no one will be justified, again, forgiven and declared right before God's sight based on the works of the law. Meaning, non-Christian friends, God will not accept you as righteous in his court of law based on your good deeds. The Bible says you don't have any. Brothers and sisters, God does not accept you based on the good deeds you've done in Christ. They're only good because of Christ. To ask God to judge you based on your merit is to ask for doom. It is to write a check that you cannot cash. We are weak under the law. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8.3, the law is actually weakened by our flesh. It cannot do for us what we need. We need someone else, and it has to be God to act on our behalf. We are helpless. You see, the first step in grasping the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is grasping that you are weak. You need someone to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, and it has to be God. But you're not just helpless. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. People are helpless and ungodly. Paul does not mean that as a compliment. You see, someone can be helpless and still good. Someone can be helpless and worthy of helping. I'm sure you've seen plenty of videos of people's heroic efforts to save animals. You can probably picture it. Some man is rappelling down a well to save a dog clinging for his life. A woman in Australia goes into a blazing forest to save a scorched koala. Someone cuts a seal free from plastic netting. I recall all the Dawn commercials, you know, saving wildlife from oil spills. Like every time you wash your dishes, you're saving a pelican. Helpless but good. If you had God's eyes and you looked down from heaven, you wouldn't see helpless but good. You don't see humanity suffering because of someone else's carelessness. It's not as though we are stuck in somebody else's plastic and oil. To see humanity with God's eyes is to see helpless and ungodly. In fact, we are helpless precisely because we are ungodly. Paul explains this in great detail, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is not one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes. What you see on the local news is not fringe humanity, mass murdering and mutilating and molesting. It is a nightly 
look into the human heart unrestrained by God's law. This is who Jesus died for. It's what makes the cross so staggering. Not the helpless and the good. Not the helpless and the worthy to save. The helpless and the vile. There is nothing in us to merit God's response, and yet Jesus died for us. Paul moves in in the next verses to stress just how unexpected Jesus' act is and how it then magnifies God's love for us. He says, verse 7, for rarely, rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. Paul is making a distinction between three kinds of people. The ungodly we just heard about, the just person, and then the good person. He starts with the just person. Perhaps this is someone who's morally upright. They demand your respect. At minimum, this is an innocent person. Okay, When an innocent person dies, it's an injustice. You can, no doubt, call to mind innocent people who've wrongfully been incarcerated or killed. Let's say at the hands of their governing authorities, it catches national attention, it causes an outcry. You may have been upset. But given the choice, Paul says, you probably would not die for them. This doesn't mean that your anger or tears were disingenuous, but you don't love them enough to die for them rarely. Rarely will someone die just for somebody who's just, innocent, or even morally upright. Paul says, but for a good person, someone might dare to die. We can more easily conceive of someone dying for someone who is good, someone we're drawn to, someone we love, someone we care for. We were recently watching with our kids How to Train Your Dragon 2. Very underappreciated trilogy. It's up there with the great trilogies. Would encourage you to watch it, but big spoiler alert coming for you. Towards the end of the second film, Hiccup, this is the protagonist. He's a part of this like Viking uh, clan. They, ha- they have dragons. He's kind of, so he's this nerdy, unassuming son of the chief king. At this point in the second film, his dragon, Toothless, is bewitched by a larger, bigger dragon and is told to kill Hiccup. Now, Hiccup thinks he can break the spell from his dragon, so he's pleading with his dragon not to kill him. He's telling him, you know me, it's me, you're Hiccup. Now, his father is some distance away. He sees what's happening, okay? And his father starts running to Hiccup, and he's yelling for him to get out of the way of the dragon. And there's not a foe. There's not anything that can stand in the father's way. Now, watching this, I know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. My kids don't know what's going to happen. I pause it. I tell them, pay attention. This is what a daddy does. We resume. The father's running quickly as he can to get to Hiccup. He's running for him to get out of the way. He doesn't, and so the father jumps in at the last second. He's struck by the dragon, and he dies saving his son. He does what a father should do. He does what you expect him to do. He lays down his life for a good man. Hiccup may have been helpless at this point, but by the end of the second film, Hiccup has become everything his father wanted him to be. He's grown to be a man who could rule his people as chief. He was worthy of his father's life. 
There's something fitting about dying for someone who's good, especially when it furthers a cause. You expect Boromir to give himself up for Frodo. You expect Tony Stark to give himself up for his friends. You expect Lily Potter to sacrifice herself to save her son. This is what you do when someone is so good. They demand your affection, your attention, your action. You're willing to give yourself up for them. They're worth it. Paul says it's not surprising to die for a good man. He says rarely will someone die for someone who's simply innocent. You can't even fathom someone dying for someone who's neither good nor innocent but vile. This is the gospel. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus doesn't just die for the helpless, he dies for the ungodly. God would be no less just or good if he simply left us in our sins. Put differently and even stronger, if God chose simply to condemn us, he would have chosen a good thing. That is what we deserve. That is not what he did. Jesus came when the time was right to help the helpless and to save the ungodly by bearing their sins upon the cross. He came to be treated as one of God's enemies so that we might become his sons and daughters. This is what happened on the cross. So does God love us? Yes. How do we know? Because Jesus died for us not when we were good or innocent, not when we were righteous, not when we were his friends, not when we were whole or healthy, but when we were sick, broken, depraved, vile, obnoxious, arrogant, turned in on ourselves, wanting nothing to do with him. And yet he wanted everything to do with us. How do we know he loves us? It was when we hated him that he acted on our behalf for our good. Why does he love us? It's simply because he chooses to love us. That's not bad news. It's incredible news. Christian, it means your obedience, your faith, your attendance, your good works, your sin, they do not influence the way that God feels about you, the way that God accepts you. You will never be more loved than God than you are right now. And it's true every time you think it. You will never be more accepted than you are right now because God has already dealt with it on the cross. God loves you. He demonstrated it when he punished his son for your sins. He punished his eternally beloved son to save you, not when you were good, but when you were wicked. Not when you were his friend, but his foe. The cross tells us what we deserve and yet what God thinks we're worth. What did he pay for you? The blood of his son. Non-Christian friend, the cross tells you what kind of person you are. You're ungodly. You have broken God's law and stand justly condemned. The cross tells you what kind of person you are. You are helpless. 
There is not a single thing that you can do to rectify your situation before God. Not enough good, not enough good deeds or attendance or philanthropy. The cross tells you what kind of person you are. You are dearly loved by God. Such that God would send his son to deal with your sin on the cross. This is the good news of Good Friday. That Jesus was punished in our stead that we might be set free. And that he is risen from the dead as we will celebrate on Sunday and as we do every Sunday. And the good news of the gospel is that this salvation is free. God offers it to you today. Receive it by faith. Brothers and sisters, does God love you? He does. How do we know? He sent his son to die for us, not when we were beautiful, but when we were broken. Why does he love you? Simply because he loves you. It's good news because it means his affection, his acceptance of you are forever fixed in Christ. If he loved you when you were ungodly, do you think he'll stop now that you are his child? The gospel is God's great demonstration that he loves us with the same kind of love that he has for his son. God loves us when we were and are at our worst. It was while we were yet sinners that he died for us. What amazing news we get to hear on Good Friday. God loves you. He's proved it once and for all on the cross. He loves you. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your love toward us in Christ Jesus. Seeing that you sent your son not for a good people, not for innocent people, but for an ungodly people, for sinners, for your enemies. We marvel at the fact that your salvation comes to us simply as a gift, and that though we continue to fail every day just as we confessed in our prayer earlier, your love for us has not changed at all. God, I pray that you would help us to marvel at what you have accomplished in the death of your son. We pray that if there are any non-Christians here, that they would be impressed by your love toward them. That though they have done nothing but rebelled against you, you have done nothing but loved them. Would you give them the gift of life? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.